This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, my name is John Fleetham. I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Drs. Anne Holland and Jerry Krishnan, who are two of the co-chairs of the ATS subcommittee who developed the guidelines on home oxygen therapy for adults with chronic lung disease, which was published last month in the Blue Journal. Dr. Holland is Professor of Physiotherapy at the Alfred Health and Monash University in Melbourne, and Dr. Krishnan is a professor and associate vice chancellor for population and health sciences at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So thank you both for joining us. And perhaps, Anne, I can start with you. Why did the ATS decide to develop a clinical practice guideline on this topic uh, now? Thanks, John. And thanks for the invitation to complete this podcast. In the last few years, there have been a few new clinical trials of oxygen therapy in patients with CAPD and ILD. So the ATS had identified that it was important to incorporate this new evidence into clinical practice guidelines. Before this, actually, there were no clinical practice guidelines for oxygen therapy in the United States, despite the fact that it's a very commonly prescribed therapy. So the ATS had identified this as a critical gap for the care of patients. The guideline really was an opportunity for the ATS to provide up-to-date recommendations for the most common types of oxygen therapy that are prescribed for these patients. And these were patients with COPD and ILD, particularly in this guideline, representing groups who are very frequently prescribed oxygen therapy. So our aim was to provide evidence-based guidance, both for clinicians and for policymakers in the United States and in other countries where home oxygen prescription is very common. So Jerry, who developed these guidelines? How did you select the questions and what was your methodology? The clinical practice guidelines um, were developed in accordance with the American Thoracic Society policies and processes, uh, which are consistent with recommendations from the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, in their 2011 seminal report called Trustworthy Guidelines. The guideline panel included a multidisciplinary group of researchers, clinicians, administrators, a patient, uh, and a representative of a community-based organization that advocates for lung health. Uh, Our group of clinicians included experts in pulmonary or critical care medicine, nursing, respiratory therapy, and physiotherapy. And as you can tell from uh, the broad uh, membership of the guideline panel, we, we really sought to represent multiple stakeholder perspectives. Uh, we really sought to have multiple stakeholder perspectives in the development of these guidelines. The questions addressed by the guidelines were identified in consultation with various assemblies and committees in the American Thoracic Society as we sought approval for the guideline and then were finalized uh, by the guideline panel uh, through an iterative process. Our approach uh, began first with a systematic review addressing the specific questions in order to summarize the evidence. And then we used a process called GRADE Uh, which stands for grading of recommendations, assessment, uh, development, and evaluation. We use the GRADE framework um, in uh, considering not only the certainty of evidence, also known as the confidence of the estimated effect, but also the magnitude of the desirable and undesirable effects of the intervention, the values placed by patients for the main outcomes, 
the balance of effects when considering the desirable and undesirable effects, the resources required at the level of the patient, provider, or society, cost effectiveness, the impact of decisions on health equity, the acceptability to key stakeholders, and finally, the feasibility of implementation uh, when we made the recommendations. It's important to know that based on these considerations, the panel essentially offered two types of recommendations. A conditional recommendation indicates a course of action that most people uh, considering home oxygen would likely want, but many would not, and therefore warrants shared decision-making between patients, caregivers, and the clinician. By contrast, a strong recommendation indicates a course of action that all or most, almost all people would likely choose. A strong recommendation indicates that the ATS believes that this recommendation can be widely translated into policy and can be used as performance indicators. The guideline panel offered two strong recommendations and four conditional recommendations, which we'll talk about next. Now, the first three recommendations refer to adults, uh, adult patients with COPD. Jerry, what was the recommendation for the first question? Should long-term oxygen be prescribed for adults with COPD who have severe chronic resting rheumatoid hypoxemia? So in short, the answer is yes. The guideline panel offered a strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence in favor of prescribing long-term oxygen therapy for at least 15 hours a day in adults with COPD who have severe chronic resting rheumatoid hypoxemia. Let me now explain why. Severe hypoxemia in this, in this guideline uh, is defined as a PaO2 of less than 55 millimeters of mercury or an oxygen saturation as measured by pulse oximetry or SpO2 of less than 88% or less than or equal to 88% or a PaO2 of 56 to 59 millimeters of mercury with an SpO2 of 89% plus one of the following, essentially evidence of right heart strain, such as edema, hematocrit greater than 55%, or P-pulmonality on an ECG. I want to emphasize that the guideline also offered multiple definitions for various terms that I think we hear in the oxygen literature. And when we say long-term oxygen therapy, we are referring to oxygen that is delivered to patients with chronic hypoxemia, in most cases for the remainder of the patient's life. Long-term oxygen therapy is prescribed for at least 15 hours a day. And this is in contrast to other uses of home oxygen, which we describe in the guideline report, including, for example, short-term oxygen therapy, which refers to a temporary use of oxygen during periods of severe hypoxemia associated, for example, with severe exacerbations of COPD. The basis for the strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence for people with COPD who have chronic resting, uh, who have severe chronic resting rheumatoid hypoxemia is that there were five studies that formed the body of evidence that was, that was reviewed by the guideline panel. Two randomized clinical trials, one pre versus post intervention study, and two observational studies. Most listeners of this podcast will remember the two randomized clinical trials. Both of them were published actually in the 1980s, the nocturnal oxygen therapy trial or the NOT trial and the Medical Research Council study, or the MRC trial, that together included 290 participants. The other three studies included a total of 76 participants, um, and those studies were published at various time points through 2017. So in total, the recommendations regarding adults with severe chronic hypoxemia is based on about 375 or so adult participants 
who were involved in these various studies. In this case, the guideline panel uh, reviewed mortality as a critical outcome, but also reviewed other what we call important outcomes, such as dyspnea, healthcare use, exercise capacity, fatigue, phys physical activity, and safety. Overall, we felt there was moderate quality evidence on the effects of long-term oxygen therapy on mortality in adults with COPD of severe chronic resting room air hypoxemia. There were some limitations to the evidence. In, in, in specific, the randomized clinical trials did not employ masking, but the guideline panel did not review, view this as a serious bias because uh, mortality was an objective outcome. There was, however, substantial imprecision in estimating the treatment effect also, the NOT and the MRC studies were not pooled as they employ different thresholds to define severe hypoxemia, examine different durations of home oxygen, employ different comparators for long-term oxygen therapy, and reported mortality at different time points, and finally use slightly different definitions of chronic severe hypoxemia. The panel concluded that there was insufficient evidence to evaluate the effects of long-term oxygen therapy on the other important outcomes, including healthcare use, but felt overall that there was moderate uh, amount of undesirable effects on long-term oxygen therapy that warrant consideration. Most clinicians and patients and caregivers are recognized that patients who are using long-term oxygen therapy often report physical or mental burden of using oxygen equipment uh, due to reduced ability to travel outside the home, difficulty obtaining information about appropriate oxygen equipment, and equipment noise that sometimes can disturb sleep. Taking all of this into consideration, the guideline panel concluded that the balance of desirable and undesirable effects supported the use of long-term oxygen therapy in patients with COPD with chronic resting hypoxemia. So we offered a strong recommendation with moderate level quality of evidence. The guideline panel also noted that if home oxygen started at the time of hospital discharge after receiving initial care for COPD exacerbations, that reassessment of patients' oxygen need is critical since up to about 50% of these patients no longer need home oxygen over a period of weeks to months. So Jerry, if I can stay with you, um, what was the recommendation for the next question? Should long-term oxygen be prescribed for adults with COPD who have moderate chronic resting room air hypoxemia? So in contrast to severe resting room air hypoxemia, the answer to this question about moderate chronic resting room air hypoxemia is in short, probably not. The guideline panel offered a conditional recommendation with low quality evidence against prescribing long-term oxygen therapy in adults with COPD who have moderate chronic resting room air hypoxemia. Here's why. There was only one study that met the eligibility criteria to answer this question. The study is called the Long-Term Oxygen Therapy Trial or the LOT study funded by the United States National Heart Lung Blood Institute and published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016. The LOT study was a very large clinical trial for oxygen. It included participants who had moderate hypoxemia at rest, defined as a resting room air SpO2 of 89 to 93%, as well as those with hy without hypoxemia at rest, but desaturation only on exertion, defined as an SpO2 of greater than 80%, for, for more than five minutes and um, less than 90% for at least 10 seconds during a six minute walk test. In the LOT study, participants with moderate hypoxemia at rest were randomly allocated to continuous oxygen 
otherwise really 24 hours a day or no oxygen. And those with isolated exertional hypoxemia were randomly allocated to long-term oxygen therapy during both exertion and sleep or to no oxygen. At the request of the guideline panel, the long-term oxygen therapy group kindly conducted additional analyses comparing the risk of death with and without long-term oxygen therapy in the subgroup of participants who had moderate resting room air hypoxemia, which turned out to be about 419 people or 57% of the lot participants. The results indicated no difference between groups in the time to death with a hazard ratio of 0.95 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.59 to 1.50. The panel concluded that the size of the desirable anticipated effect on mortality, which was a critical outcome, was not clinically meaningful. And moreover, there was substantial imprecision in that estimate. Likewise, the effects of long-term oxygen therapy and other outcomes, including health-related quality of life, was not clinically meaningful, and the data were insufficient to evaluate other important outcomes. In a judgment similar to that developed for question number one, the panel concluded that there's moderate level, undesirable anticipated effects of long-term oxygen therapy. So overall, the guideline panel concluded that the balance of, between desirable and undesirable effects does not favor long-term oxygen therapy in those with moderate hypoxemia. Hence, we provided a conditional recommendation with low quality evidence against prescribing it. And if I could move to you, what was the recommendation for the next question? Should ambulatory oxygen be prescribed for adults with COPD who have severe exertional room air hypoxemia? The answer to this question is probably yes. The guideline panel offered a conditional recommendation with moderate quality evidence in favour of prescribing ambulatory oxygen in adults with COPD who have severe exertional room air hypoxemia. So we defined severe exertional hypoxemia as an SpO2 less than or equal to 88% on exertion. Our critical outcome for this question was health-related quality of life, and we also considered other important outcomes, including symptoms, exercise capacity, physical activity, mortality, healthcare use, and safety. We included quite a number of studies evaluating the use of oxygen in patients with COPD and exertional desaturation. But actually most of these reported just on the acute effects of oxygen during exercise tests. So during a cardiopulmonary exercise test or a six minute walk test. We found only two parallel group randomised controlled trials of ambulatory oxygen in COPD, of which only one included blinding to the intervention. We found that effects on the critical outcome of health-related quality of life tended to favour ambulatory oxygen, but actually the effect was small and it was difficult to know whether it was clinically meaningful. The effects of ambulatory oxygen for individuals with COPD couldn't be predicted by their characteristics, so uh, characteristics such as disease severity, degree of desaturation, or the acute response to oxygen. The acute effects of oxygen on exercise capacity certainly favoured oxygen. So during an exercise test, people would be able to walk further or cycle for longer on oxygen than with no oxygen. But no studies measured physical activity in daily life, so it was difficult to know whether these effects would carry over outside the laboratory setting. 
The panel also considered the substantial body of evidence regarding the potential burdens of ambulatory oxygen therapy for patients and caregivers, which included managing the weight and the bulk of the equipment, the embarrassment and perceived stigma of using oxygen, fears of cylinders running out, uh, reduced ability to travel outside the home, equipment noise that could affect social activities, in some cases difficulty obtaining equipment, particularly portable concentrators, and poor access to good information about effective use of oxygen equipment. So overall, the guideline panel concluded that the balance of desirable and undesirable effects probably favours ambulatory oxygen for most people with COPD and exertional desaturation. But given the potential burden of this treatment and our uncertainty regarding whether there are clinically important effects, it's likely that some patients will choose not to use ambulatory oxygen. So this was an additional recommendation. As some patients cannot walk further with ambulatory oxygen due to its weight or other factors, is it appropriate to restrict ambulatory oxygen to the patients in which it's shown objectively to increase their exercise performance? That's an excellent question, John. There are many reasons, of course, why a patient may not have an acute increase in exercise performance with ambulatory oxygen, including the weight and manoeuvrability of the device, but also musculoskeletal limitations such as arthritis, along with other conditions that limit mobility. In addition, we don't know the relationship between acute increases in exercise capacity and outcomes that are of importance to patients, including symptoms and community participation. It's possible that patients who do not increase their exercise performance may benefit in other ways. And conversely, those that do increase their exercise performance may have no meaningful impact of oxygen in their daily life. So I think your question goes to the heart of what we were trying to achieve with oxygen therapy uh, in the ambulatory setting and the need to define the outcomes that are important. In making its recommendation, the committee placed a high value on the potential of ambulatory oxygen to increase health-related quality of life and facilitate physical activity outside the home. However, we had limited data on health-related quality of life and no data on physical activity. So future trials should certainly include such patient-centered outcomes. At this moment, I don't think we have data to justify restriction of ambulatory oxygen to those in whom an acute exercise response to oxygen is documented. The committee viewed this, this conditional recommendation as an opportunity for shared decision-making between health professionals and patients to ensure that this therapy addresses the needs and goals of the individual. Well, the next two recommendations relate to adult patients with interstitial lung disease. And what was the recommendation for the next question? Should long-term oxygen be prescribed for adults with interstitial lung disease who have severe chronic resting room air hypoxemia? The answer to this question was yes. The guideline panel offered a strong recommendation with very low quality of evidence in favour of prescribing long-term oxygen therapy for at least 15 hours a day in adults with ILD who have severe chronic resting room air hypoxemia. This was an important question to address as severe resting hypoxemia is very common in adults with advanced ILD and oxygen is considered a very important treatment. The critical outcome that the panel selected for this question was mortality. We found no clinical trials in ILD that directly addressed our question, however. Because of this, we chose to consider indirect evidence from the question on use of LTOT in patients with COPD and severe resting hypoxemia, which Jerry has discussed earlier. The panel judged the benefits of long-term oxygen therapy to be substantial for most adults with ILD and severe resting hypoxemia. Long-term oxygen therapy may confirm a mortality benefit as it does in COPD. 
Long-term oxygen therapy may also prevent organ dysfunction due to severe and sustained hypoxemia, including prevention of pulmonary hypertension. And other benefits may include relief of breathlessness, as well as improvements in disability and health-related quality of life. So overall, the panel judged that the balance of desirable and undesirable effects supported the use of long-term oxygen therapy in patients with ILD with severe resting hypoxemia. The panel also encouraged health professionals to work closely with patients and caregivers to select the oxygen delivery system that best meets their needs, given that many of these patients have profound hypoxemia uh, that is uh, sometimes more severe than what we see in other patients. Jerry, this was a very strong recommendation or a strong recommendation, but it's based on very low or absent evidence. Why is this recommendation so strong? And do you anticipate we'll be able to do randomized controlled trials in the future to validate this recommendation? Yeah, John, so that's a great question. And I think that's important uh, for listeners to recognize that that's the reason why the American Thoracic Society uses the great approach in developing guidelines is that it provides transparency about how the evidence is translated into recommendations. In this case, as Anne just reviewed, we have very low quality evidence because of the reliance on number one, indirect evidence from clinical trials and other studies conducted in patients with COPD that demonstrate a survival benefit when such patients have severe resting room air hypoxemia and are prescribed long-term oxygen therapy. And number two, clinical experience in this population that overall moved the panel to conclude that long-term oxygen therapy is likely to confer desirable benefits for many with severe resting hypoxemia. I doubt there's sufficient equipoise among clinicians and patients to permit a clinical trial of long-term oxygen therapy versus no oxygen in patients with interstitial lung disease and severe hypoxemia. We do therefore acknowledge, and the guideline panel acknowledges that our strong recommendation was based on very low quality evidence. We do feel, however, that there's an opportunity for observational studies and quasi-experimental studies as options to fill the evidence gaps in this population. And that's, again, an advantage of how the guidelines are prepared for the American Thoracic Society is that we separate the strength of the recommendations from the quality of evidence. Okay, well, back to ambulatory oxygen. Um, and should ambulatory oxygen be prescribed to adults with interstitial lung disease who have severe exertional room air hypoxemia? So John, the answer to this question is probably yes. The guideline panel offered a conditional recommendation with low quality evidence in favour of prescribing ambulatory oxygen in adults with ILD who have severe exertional room air hypoxemia. Our critical outcome for this question was health related quality of life. We found one randomised crossover trial with a two-week treatment period that examined ambulatory oxygen in 84 patients with fibrotic ILD, and this is the AMBOX study. That study showed clinically important improvements in health-related quality of life after two weeks. The study was not blinded, and we don't have any information about longer-term effects of ambulatory oxygen in this group. We did find other studies that demonstrated acute improvements in exercise performance with ambulatory oxygen in ILD, but there were no studies that examined whether this carried over into improved physical activity in daily life. So similar to the other questions, we also considered the burdens of ambulatory oxygen therapy, which include things like difficulties using the equipment, some unmet expectations for symptom relief, particularly dyspnea in some patients, and increased dependence on caregivers. 
So overall, the guideline panel concluded that the balance of desirable and undesirable effects probably favours ambulatory oxygen for most people with ILD and exertional desaturation. But given the potential burden of this treatment, it's likely that some patients will choose not to use ambulatory oxygen. The panel also noted that the need for high flow ambulatory oxygen devices is greater in patients with ILD than for instance, those with COPD because the magnitude of exertional hypoxemia is greater. And so device selection is very important in this group. Okay, Jerry, uh, the, the last question you asked was, uh, should portable long-term oxygen be provided for adults with chronic lung disease who are prescribed continuous oxygen flows of greater than three liters a minute during exercise? Uh, what was the recommendation for this? Thank you, John. So in patients with chronic lung disease who are mobile outside the home and require continuous flow rates greater than three liters per minute during exertion, the panel suggested prescribing portable liquid oxygen, which is considered a conditional recommendation based on very low quality evidence. The panel acknowledged that considerations beyond certainty of evidence influence the formulation of the recommendation. In this case, the guideline panel acknowledged an absence of studies examining continuous flow liquid oxygen at three liters per minute, but concluded that desirable consequences and benefits are likely to outweigh the undesirable consequences and harms of liquid portable oxygen. This topic is ripe for a clinical trial. So one of the novel aspects of these guidelines uh, was the discussion about patient education and safety. And what are the points about patient education and safety you would like to highlight? I think the inclusion of a section on patient education and safety is a real strength of this clinical practice guideline. We know from many qualitative studies that patients and caregivers frequently feel that they have insufficient knowledge and skills to optimise their oxygen use. And of course, this may affect adherence. So some key points that are highlighted by the guideline are firstly, the need to provide safety education regarding avoidance of tripping and falls related to the equipment decreasing fire risk by not allowing smoking in the home and avoidance of activities around an open flame, ensuring that the burns risk associated with e-cigarettes is also understood, safe transport of oxygen equipment, and the presence of backup devices for emergencies where that's required. The clinical practice guideline also highlights the need for smoking cessation support for patients and caregivers where that's relevant, including treatment of nicotine dependence and referral to appropriate resources. It talks about uh, the need to ensure that patients understand how to use and troubleshoot their prescribed devices, including their ambulatory oxygen devices, which can be challenging, with the use of techniques such as return demonstration to ensure that, that the, um, the teaching has been effective. And the guideline also talks about the need for regular monitoring and reassessment of oxygen needs with the frequency of this reassessment determined by disease characteristics and progression. And the panel thought this was particularly important for patients who are newly prescribed oxygen on hospital discharge to confirm their ongoing oxygen requirements. Jerry, I'm not sure these are in the guidelines, but uh, a question comes up from our listeners. What are the factors you consider when stopping oxygen in a patient who already established on home oxygen therapy? Thank you, John. Well, as with all healthcare interventions, we should reassess our care strategy from time to time to be sure that the overall balance and magnitude of the desirable, undesirable effects continues to favor the therapy that we're talking about. And in this case, home oxygen. For example, there are many instances in which we prescribe home oxygen in individuals who have chronic, severe resting room air hypoxemia, 
And in a minority of these individuals, their oxygenation actually improves. There are some treatable conditions in which this might happen. For example, if someone has a pneumonia that over time gets better, or they have an intrapulmonary shunt for, uh, that may get better with certain therapies. So we should be reassessing our care strategy from time to time in people with home oxygen. We should also reassess not only to discontinue home oxygen, but in some cases, um, modifying uh, the home oxygen devices we might give individuals who now may, may become more ambulatory, for example, and therefore we wanna offer them the convenience the liquid oxygen or other forms of home oxygen therapy uh, may offer them. Um, one other scenario that I think it's worth noting is that um, as I reassess individuals in whom I prescribe um, home oxygen, um, one of the things that I make clear to our patients is that, that while I believe that, uh, that they may require oxygen on a long-term basis, that we, we should be reassessing them so that we're understanding better the harms and benefits, including the burden of continuing home oxygen. And there are other guidelines on this topic. Uh, the British thoracic, the Australian thoracic, I'm sure you're familiar with, Gold Initiative uh, and several others. Are there any important differences between your guidelines and these other guidelines? John, I think our recommendations for long-term oxygen therapy in patients with severe resting hypoxemia are broadly consistent with those other guidelines, all of which favour its prescription in patients with COPD and ILD. I believe ours is the first guideline to date to address long-term oxygen therapy for moderate resting hypoxemia because we were able to include new evidence from the LOT trial, although it is mentioned in gold uh, and they also suggest it should not be routinely prescribed. I think the difference between our guideline and others is greatest in the area of ambulatory oxygen, where actually to date recommendations have varied quite considerably across the different guidelines and some don't mention it at all. So for instance, the 2015 British Thoracic Society guidelines states that ambulatory oxygen should not be routinely offered to patients with COPD and isolated exertional hypoxemia and should only be offered to those eligible for LTOT if they're mobile outdoors. So our guideline was able to review and include updated evidence that has become available since that time. And I think we were able to make a substantial contribution in this area around ambulatory oxygen, although of course, more evidence is certainly needed in this area. Our guideline is I think the first to address the use of liquid oxygen for patients with high oxygen needs. And although we found little data in this area, we do hope it will promote discussion and further research regarding best care for this patient group. Jerry, we always like to finish off with this question, but what are the unanswered questions and research priorities moving forward in home oxygen therapy? Absolutely. And, and I think one of the other strengths of this guideline report is to lay out a number of areas in which there are evidence gaps. And we hope that the clinical and research community review the guidelines to identify those that may be most suitable in order to address. For example, the practice of initiating short-term oxygen therapy and hospital discharge in patients with severe hypoxemia is based on indirect evidence from the NOT and MRC clinical trial populations in which they were determined to have chronic hypoxemia. The harms and benefits of prescribing short-term oxygen therapy on hospital discharge deserves further study. Further research is also needed on the appropriate use of shared decision-making tools between patients and their clinicians for decisions regarding home oxygen therapy and on approaches to discontinuation of home oxygen therapy when uh, they no longer have severe resting room air hypoxemia. This review confirms scarce and inconclusive data 
to support the prescription of oxygen in patients who have normoxemia at rest by desaturate, sometimes markedly with exertion, something we've called severe isolated exertional hypoxemia. Additional studies are needed in this population, as well as to guide the use of liquid oxygen therapy. Other critical gaps include the need for more convenient oxygen delivery devices that are lightweight with long battery lives, and that include feedback loops with real-time measurement of oxygen saturation in order to maintain adequate oxygenation during sleep, rest, and with activity. In sum, while this guideline report is evidence-based, there are a number of areas in which we've highlighted evidence gaps, and we hope that the clinical and research communities are able to review this and help fill these gaps for the next revision of these guidelines. So just before we wrap up, uh, are there any final points you want to emphasize about these guidelines? Uh, Anne, starting with you. I think uh, the, the guideline panel really hope that these guidelines will be useful to patients and to clinicians and to policymakers to provide some consistency in the approach to oxygen therapy in patients with COPD and ILD. There are, of course, many other questions about oxygen therapy that were not addressed in this guideline, um, but we hope this is a, this is a start uh, to a consistent uh, approach to oxygen therapy for our patients. Jerry? Thank you, John. Um, I'd like to recognize that uh, the guideline panel was truly multidisciplinary, including an individual with the lived experience of using home oxygen, and that this is an experience that I learned from in helping to develop uh, these guidelines. And we want to thank the guideline panel, as well as the American Thoracic Society, uh, in supporting this effort. We ask that readers uh, review what we have recommended and where there's need for clarification or other questions that these be sent to the chair of the guideline panel. So I'd like to thank Dr. Holland and Krishnan for this discussion. For the listener to read the guideline, please visit the podcast homepage, atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.